The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Chapter number eight for our text reading here today. Good morning and welcome here to Ambassador Baptist Church on this 4th of July weekend. So glad to have each and every one of you in the house of the Lord as we embark on a brand new series of messages that will take us all the way through the summer months. And so I'm looking forward to this particular series that we've entitled Age of Kings. And I believe that this particular series will be one that I think on the one hand will be very informational. I think you'll learn a lot about a particular portion of history. But as we move through these passages, I hope that there will also be much that we can glean uh, in our own spiritual lives as well. And so 1 Kings chapter number 8 is where we're going to be looking at. Uh, To be honest, uh, as we move through this, we're going to study much just on the nation of Israel. And for those of you who have been in church any length of time or maybe just fascinated with particular uh, portions of history, maybe there's already much that you know about uh, what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. But the reality is that the nation of Israel truly was and is God's chosen people. It was the nation of Israel that God chose to send his Messiah through. So Jesus Christ would be born of that lineage. And so in doing so, we see that the Jewish people are the chosen people of God. And there are blessings upon those who stand with Israel. We are commanded in the scriptures to pray for Israel. And uh, even to this day, Israel plays a major part in just the world events. And it's amazing how so much of what takes place in the news centers around Israel and what's taking place in that portion of the world. We come here to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, as we're going to be moving through these portions of Scripture. And the reality is we know more about this time and location in history than just about any other time period. And uh, it really is the stuff that movies are made of. If, if, as you begin to read through these portions of Scripture, the events that take place are just absolutely incredible. And uh, to be honest, many movies, I'm sure, could be made just talking about some of these outstanding, incredible events. Uh, The reason that we know so much about this period of time, you say, what period of time are we referring to? Uh, Basically, we're referring to the time about 1150 B.C. uh, to about 600 B.C. So about those four to 500 years there is just a very rich season of history. And and the reason for that is because there were so many historians uh, uh, that were really writing about all that was taking place. In fact, in the scriptures itself, regardless of any other history, just in the Bible, three different authors wrote about this 500-year period. And so, uh, basically, there are about three lenses that look at this 500-year period. Uh, you'll find the books First and Second Samuel, as well as First and Second Kings here, were written that focus on this 500-year time period. Uh, then you'll find another perspective in First and Second Chronicles, and this perspective 
It narrates the same 500 years, but from a different author, from a different perspective. And then as you come to the end of the Old Testament, what is often referred to as the major and minor prophets, also look at this 500-year time span from a third lens or from a third perspective. And so there's no wonder that there is so much information about this time period, so much information about this period in history, as well as this particular, uh, this area in the world. And so, just to give you some background, uh, for the first 500 years of Israel's existence, they did not have a king. In fact, their king was God. And God set it up that their governance, their governmental system would structure where he gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai and then he instituted the prophets and judges. And the way this worked was for about 500 years, the law had been given there to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. They did not have a king. They did not have a human sovereign from that uh, kind of perspective like many of the other nations would have had during this time. They had what was referred to as judges and these judges were used to discern whether or not these laws and how they interacted with the daily human living of the children of Israel and so that was the structure they used. In fact, it would be about 3,000 years later when our founding fathers would adopt a lot of this governmental infrastructure into the founding of the United States of America. In fact, uh, as you read historical documents of our own country, you'll find that many of the principles, many of the, much of the infrastructure that was used when God uh, it literally introduced the nation of Israel to a governance system was adopted by our founding forefathers. And uh, instead of having a king or an absolute sovereign, there were laws and judges and checks and balances and this was all instituted by God for the nation of Israel. But we as Americans have instituted, our founding fathers instituted much of this infrastructure into the United States of America, which is one reason I believe God has had his hand of favor and blessing upon this country is because it so similarly reflects his heartbeat for the way things would be governed. So for the first 500 years, the nation of Israel had no king. And then we're going to get to our passage here in 1 Samuel chapter number 8. We're going to read it in just a moment. Where finally the children of Israel say, we, we want a king. All the other nations get a king and, and we're the weirdos out there. And, and, and so we see the elders from the nation of Israel come to the prophet Samuel and say, we want to be just like all the other countries. We want to be just like all the other nations. We want a king just like everybody else has a king. And that's what we're going to focus on a little bit today. And you're going to find that God allows the nation of Israel to adopt kings. And for 500 years, really, they reap... <laughs> the negative effects of that decision. And for 500 years, 450 years, 500 years, they go through king after king after king, heartache after heartache. Some of the kings, a few of the kings reflected the heart of God. Many of the kings disregarded the laws of God, the heart of God. And so this summer, we're going to just begin to journey through that portion of history and see what God might have for us here today. 
Inside your service program, you'll find an outline that you can use to follow along through the message. I hope it'll be a help to you as we study the Word of God together this morning. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand here this morning as we read uh, this portion of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter number 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 4, and uh, we'll read down to verse number 7, and this will make up here our text this morning. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter number 8 and verse number 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah. So many of the elders from the different tribes, those of you who understand uh, Israel history, you understand there were the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the elders from each of these tribes gathered themselves together and they made their way to come and see the prophet there, Samuel, uh, in Ramah. Verse 5. And the elders said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And so the elders say, hey, we want to be like everybody else. I know we're God's chosen people. I know God instituted a certain infrastructure, a certain structure for us. But we don't want to be unique. We don't want to be distinct. We don't want to be weird. We want to be like everybody else. And we want a king to judge us and reign over us. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So you see Samuels, he's really, ah, he's just frustrated about this thing. Why don't they want what God wants for them? And here as a preacher, as a prophet, all he wants is the best for Israel. And so he stands up and he proclaims and he preaches and he, he gives the law and the word of God. And, and they start to reject him. And, and now Samuel's getting a little bit uh, irritated by this thing. Uh, and, and, and so he goes to God and he says, God, what, what should I do? And God says, it's okay, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They no longer want me to be king. They no longer want me to be in charge. 500 years, the children of Israel, no king. They had the law of God, the judges, and the prophets. This new age here at about 1150 BC enters into the age of kings. And for about 500 years, the nation of Israel would have kings that would reign over them. And this is where it all began. And so we're going to unpack this portion of history today. And I hope there's some things that you and I can glean here from it, shall we pray. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we understand that all Scripture is profitable. And so as we dive into this historical section of Scripture, uh, a, a portion of Scripture that has a lot of history to it, that has a lot of just uh, facts and, and chronological uh, uh, events that take place. I pray that we would see the unfolding story of redemption through it. May we learn much about the character of God in these passages. May this, this next few weeks be more than just about learning about facts and times and memorizing certain things about history. But may we really learn about your heart through this. 
May, may we learn deeper, Lord, what it means to, to be your children. And I pray that you would use your word, Lord, to minister to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. A couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine was over at my house, and his name was Steve. He, Steve was a football player when he was in college, and just a big old strong guy. And my son Landon, who was probably one or two at the time, uh, he was standing up on a counter, a table of sorts. And so Steve comes over, about six foot one or so, and came over and said, hey, jump into my hands, you know. And this is Landon, he's two years old, just a little baby, he's standing up there. And uh, my friend comes over. Now Landon doesn't know him very well, and you could just see him giving them this very confused look as to why in the world would I jump, or would I put my life in your hands, you know, and kind of jump into your arms arms and he wouldn't do it and a couple minutes later a couple moments later that I came over and I said land and jump and and, and just like that like no, nobody's business he just jumps off that counter flying through the air I mean he would have obviously hurt himself if he would have hit the ground uh, but as his father I caught him as you would expect me to do what I thought was interesting about that was here was a guy who was obviously in better shape than I was, who was probably by all accounts stronger than I was, who if, any, if, if, if someone had the ability to catch it would have been Steve to be able to do this. He had the athletic ability, the strength ability to do that. But here was Landon and even with all of that going for Steve, he wouldn't jump. But when his dad, his father came along, there was a trust. That allowed him to leap, to literally put his life, to put his health in the hands of his father. See, the reason that Landon would jump into my arms and not into the arms of my friend had nothing to do with the reality of strength. It had everything to do with something called trust. One of the things that I find as we're going to see unpacked here in this passage is oftentimes we get to seasons in our lives where we stop trusting our Heavenly Father. It has nothing to do with the fact that He is not capable. It has nothing to do with the fact that He does not possess wisdom and power and strength and compassion. It has nothing to do with the realities of those things. It has everything to do with the fact that we don't really know Him well enough to trust Him in some arenas of our life. Which leads us here to our kind of theme for the morning, if, if I can call it that. What's going to kind of frame what we're going to talk about this morning, and that is simply this. To know God is to trust God. To know God is to trust God. And what we're going to find in this portion of Scripture is that for about 500 years, the children of Israel had been grown distant in their relationship with God. They had stopped getting to know Him the way they once knew Him corporately as a nation. And because of that, trust was beginning to diminish. Not because God had changed, not because His character had changed, not because His essence had changed, but because their relationship, they did not uh, come into His presence. They didn't know Him like they once did and it caused them to no longer trust Him as they once did before. This morning from this passage, we're going to look at two incredible aspects of who God is, 
that I really believe will help each and every one of us trust God in a deeper way. So let's just get right into our text here in verse number 8. You'll see where Samuel and God are speaking and and God makes this statement and he says, verse number 8, according to all the works which they have done, notice this, since the day that I have brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day. And so God is saying, literally, since the moment I rescued them from Egypt, the bondage, those of you who understand the history of Israel, you understand that they were in bondage for hundreds of years. They were, in, they were literally captives. They were slaves to Pharaoh. God here sent to, uh, Moses along and to literally free his people. And so we come to this portion of history and God says to Samuel, my, for these hundreds of years I have been faithful to these people. For hundreds of years I have been good to these people. For hundreds of years I have shown myself strong. I have shown myself great to these people. But they continue to complain. They continue to not be satisfied. They're not satisfied. They want more. Never thankful for what I've done. And yet the reality is, and let's, this is church, let's be honest for a moment. I think we've all been here. I know I have. We're even in light of God's goodness and even in light of God's blessings and even in light of God's greatness shown on our behalf. It's easy to lose track of it, is it not? In the busyness of life, with everything that's going on, the distractions that exist in our world, it's very easy to lose track of the goodness of God. Not to say it's not there anymore, but we just don't focus on it like we once did. Before we know it, a few days can go by, a few weeks can go by, and we've just stopped contemplating, we've stopped meditating, we stopped focusing on the goodness of God and the greatness of God. This is why the book of Psalm tells us in 40 verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises unto our King. For God is the King of all the earth. Just like with the nation of Israel, there are times when we neglect Him, don't we? He's good. He shows us His blessing. He reveals His greatness. And yet there are seasons in all of our lives where we begin to neglect who He is. We begin to take for granted what He's done in our lives. And this verse says, no, I want to remind you to sing praises to God. Sing praises to the King. For God is King of all the earth, which leads us here to our first thought, and that is simply this. God still longs to be with us. He still desires to hear from us. He still wants to spend time with us. And I I want you to see today, don't ever stop recognizing that God is a good king. Don't ever stop recognizing that God is a good king. That is exactly what began to take place in this passage. They wanted a king like all the other nations because they had become dissatisfied with God as their king. They had become dissatisfied with God as their ruler. They had become dissatisfied with God being the one who could mandate how they live. They began to get dissatisfied. They stopped recognizing that God was a good, great, and gracious God. They might put this on the screens, but all of us need to take time to reflect both on the goodness of what God does 
and the greatness of who God is. We'll leave this for a moment because I want you to see this. We live in an incredibly fast-paced society. There's always stuff going on. We've got internet. We've got Facebook. We've got this thing and that thing. You can't go anywhere where it's quiet. Always something vying for our attention. Trying to get our focus here and there. And it's so easy to go days and weeks and sometimes even months and not truly reflect and not truly focus on the goodness of what God does for us and the greatness of who He is in His essence. Who He is in His nature on our behalf. And I believe it's a, an important thing that we regularly create margin in our lives to simply reflect on the goodness and greatness of our God. If we were to be honest here, we could take the next two or three hours, couldn't we? And give testimony to the goodness of God and to the greatness that He has revealed about Himself through us and in our lives. I think all of us, to be honest, none of us would stand here and say, well, I just, I'm trying to ignore God. I, that's none of our intentions. But in the busyness of this world, it begins to happen. Oh, that we would be a people who recognize that God is a good king. Psalm 136 says this, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Why? For He is good. Zechariah 9 says, For how great is His goodness and how great is His beauty. Our Heavenly Father, can I say this? He's a good King. He's a gracious King. He is a loving Sovereign. He often reveals Himself great on our behalf. And, and for believers, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to say to you today that God's goodness to us does not depend on our goodness for Him. We looked at this last week. God's goodness to us does not depend on our goodness for Him. And this is why the mercy and the grace of God is just so scandalous. <laughs> because He's good when we don't deserve it. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that He reigns, literally blessing upon the just and the unjust. His goodness to us is not dependent upon our goodness for Him. He's good. Um, somebody might be sitting here right now and you might be thinking to yourself, well, if God is so good, then why am I experiencing such negative circumstances in my life right now? <laughs> if He really is a good King, if He really is who the Bible claims Him to be and who you say He is, if He truly is so good then why are my circumstances so bad? Why is it that I seem to be going through what I'm going through right now? And I, I want to say this to you. Oftentimes, what we want from God when we're going through negative circumstances, what we desire from God, is His rescuing grace from the circumstances. I, I think all of us have been in places where we pray and say, Dear God, give me your rescuing grace. Deliver me from these negative circumstances. And we would regularly ask God and we would regularly pray for His rescuing grace in our lives. God, deliver me from this. Now, 
It might be that what God is giving you in this moment is not His rescuing grace, but what He is in His goodness as a good and great and wise King. Though He might not be giving you His rescuing grace, more than likely what it is, is His refining grace. It is a grace that He is giving you to make you into something that you could not be without those negative circumstances. And so God, even in the midst of allowing you to go through difficult times, and even in the midst of allowing you to go through difficult seasons, it is not that He has abandoned you. It is not that He's just kind of left you out to dry. It is His refining grace in your life that allows you to go through some difficult seasons and some difficult times, not because He hates you, not because He does not love you anymore, but because He does love you, because He is good, and because He wants to use that refining grace in your life to mold you into something that you could not be without those circumstances. And in His infinite wisdom and in His incredible goodness... In his providence, he allows those negative circumstances to stay in your life for a season so he can do a refining work in your life. Oh, that we would be thankful however his goodness expresses itself. How many of you are thankful when his goodness expresses itself in rescuing grace? What a wonderful thing that is. But that we would be just as thankful when God really expresses his goodness to us in his refining grace as well. So we see here both his rescuing and his refining grace. Have you ever met somebody who just knew how to be thankful for just about anything? I remember when I was about six or seven years old, we used to do this thing where we, we'd have like a men and boys camp out when we were kids. And, and my dad and us, we'd get together and we'd go up camping and, and go up to the mountains and have a good time. And I remember on one occasion, uh, I was invited uh, to cook the scrambled eggs for our camp out. And there was about 25 guys uh, who were going to be eating that morning. And so we uh, had different sections. And as a seven-year-old, I was the one who was going to be in charge of making the scrambled eggs. And, and I'd never made scrambled eggs up to this point, but I figured how hard could it be and I got out the skillet there and somebody helped me crack the eggs and there over the fire I begin to scramble those eggs now what I did not understand is it's very important that you scrape the bottom of the pan as you're kind of whipping the top of the eggs after about seven minutes or so somebody came along and began to peel up those scrambled eggs and though the top was very nice and cooked the bottom was like burnt and just kind of scrambled those all together. And it was this burnt kind of chunks of just, you know, charcoal on this. That was just horrible, awful. And everybody kind of comes along and they're looking at these things. At the time, my brother Makai, I think he might have been three or four years old, after a day of running around at the campsite, dirt all over his face, dirt all over his body, comes up and he gets all his meal. And we're going through it. And everybody else is just kind of being nice about it, you know. Just, yeah, how good, you know, trying to take a bite and then probably throwing it away as soon as they got out of my sight, you know. And uh, Micaiah got up, he took a bite, and he said, I like it. <laughs> and, you know, I started to put a smile on my face. That's good. He looks at me, I like it. Tastes just like dirt. <laughs> of course, my bubble just burst. The reality is, it seems like just some people in some situations can just be thankful for just about anything. 
And my prayer is that we would not simply be thankful when God expresses His goodness in a rescuing manner. But that we would also be thankful and express gratitude when His goodness reveals itself in a refining manner in our lives. And so we see here this passage there. I want to encourage you to regularly spend time with God. To reflect regularly on His goodness. To create margin in your daily life. To carve out for God. He is a good king. He is a good sovereign. He is a good ruler. He is worthy of your time. He's worthy of your focus. He's worthy of your energy. He's worthy of it. You see, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible declares that you became a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're no longer a part of the kingdom of self. You no longer belong to the kingdom of this world. The Bible declares that you belong to the kingdom of God. You're a citizen now in God's kingdom. And as a part of, a, as a part of, of, of God's kingdom, as a citizen in His kingdom, you now have a ruler that is good. He's your heavenly Father. He's good. And He's good all the time. But not only is your heavenly father, not only is this king good, I want to remind you that he is also wise. It would kind of be pointless to have a benevolent ruler who really didn't know what was going to happen next. But aren't you thankful that your king knows what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and next month? He truly is all-knowing. He truly is all-wise. And your heavenly Father, your King, yes, not only is He just good, but He's wise and fully wise. He understands all things. But not only is He completely wise, but He is also all-powerful. As a citizen of the kingdom of God, you now have a King who is all-good. He is all-knowing and He is all-powerful. That is the kingdom that you are now now a part of. And so now you have freedom. You can trust your king. He's a king that is good. He is a king that is loving. He is a king that is wise. He is a king that is powerful. And you can fully trust your king as you get to know him. The only thing that keeps a believer from not trusting and obeying their king, only thing is they do not take time to really get to know them experientially. Because to know God is to trust him. What keeps us from trusting him, what keeps us from obeying him, is we just don't truly know him. We don't know him. We haven't taken the time to focus, to reflect, to know him deeply. And that's what begins to happen here in 1 Samuel 8. The nation of Israel stops remembering God's greatness. They stop focusing on God's goodness. 
And now before you know it, here they are. And they want nothing to do with God as their king. They want to be just like everybody else. So let's get back to our narrative in verse number 9 here. So in verse 8, God says, hey, they, they've... They no longer remember. They're not thinking about all these things that I have done for them. Verse 9. Now therefore, hearken unto their voice, God says to Samuel. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Basically, God says to the prophet Samuel, at least tell them what's going to happen. At least tell them what they're in for. Tell them what it's really going to be like. Warn them of their human kings, how they won't be as gracious, how they won't be as good, how they won't be as loving as I have been to them. You see, as the nation of Israel had stopped reflecting on the goodness of God, it caused them to no longer want His authority in their lives. And I'm going to say the same thing will happen in my life and the same thing will happen in your life as we remove ourselves, as we now have less and less margin to reflect on the goodness of God, as we have less and less time to focus on the greatness and really bask in experiencing His goodness on our behalf. As we, all of a sudden, our life gets so marginalized and so busy and so distracted where all of a sudden we don't have time to think of his goodness. We don't have time to regularly focus on his greatness. And though he is still intrinsically good and though he is still intrinsically great, we've marginalized him in our lives. Here's what, here's the next step. Once we've done that, we're just a few steps away from now no longer wanting his authority in our lives. We can't trust him because we don't know him. Trust is based on relationship. Trust is based on knowing Him. And so even as Christians, even as believers, though God maintains His goodness, and though God maintains His greatness, when we all of a sudden allow that relationship that we have with Him to get put on a back burner, and now we don't have time for quiet time anymore. And I'm not just talking so you can kind of check something off your to-do list. I'm talking about getting into the Word so you can get to know your Heavenly Father deeper. And you can experience Him afresh and anew that day. And, and look for opportunities where you can really experience Him. Experiencing His goodness and asking to experience His grace. and Asking Him to experience His strength afresh and anew that day. Once we grow distant in our relationship, it isn't long before we, like the nation of Israel, no longer want to be under His authority because we don't trust them. We might say we do with our words. We might pay lip service to his kingliness, but our hearts grow cold. Our hearts grow far from him because we don't regularly take time to reflect afresh and anew upon him. The reality is this, God always has been and always will be in reality the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is in charge whether we want to submit to his authority or not. He's in charge whether we surrender to his decrees 
or not. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And, and I want to remind you that Christianity is more than just about do's and don'ts as much of the world would have us to believe. Well, Christians, you're just about you can do this and you can't do that. That is simply the repercussions of a relationship with God. But at its very essence and at its very core, really Christianity is about full allegiance to God day in and day out, focusing on Him, spending time with Him, experiencing seeing him afresh and new. I am not talking about getting up in the morning and just reading some passage of the Bible so you can convince yourself that you're a good Christian. Reading it just so you can kind of check it off your to-do list. This is not a duty. It's not just a responsibility. This opportunity is for you to once again re- understand who he is and get to know him a little deeper and look for opportunities where you can experience him a little deeper afresh and anew each and every day. Which leads us to our next thought this morning, and that is simply this. When we're consistently and constantly recognizing that God is a good king, and this becomes a a regular part of the rhythm of our lives, it allows us to respond with allegiance to him. Obedience to God outside the context of who He is for us, who He is in us, and who He wants to be through us, is flesh dependence. You'll you'll dot your I's and cross your T's, you'll walk the walk and talk the talk. But when it is pulled, when obedience to God or somehow obedience to some rule outside the context of a relationship with God, it's empty and it's vain. To the point where the Apostle Paul addressed this on many occasions. Speaking of the reality that the good you try to do will not profit because it is not the Spirit of God doing it through you. See, when we're constantly recognizing, when we're constantly abiding in God, when we're constantly reaffirming that He's good and reaffirming His greatness on our behalf, it allows us to respond with allegiance to Him. When we're regularly reflecting on God's goodness, it's only natural to submit to His will and obey His word. But if you try to obey his word outside of the context of a relationship with him, you'll fall flat on your face every single time. Because at the end of the day, Christianity is not about rules. It is first and foremost about a relationship that then blossoms into allegiance to your king. And it no longer is about, I got to do this rule and I got to do that rule. It's how I want to please the rule maker. He's done so much for me and I love him and he cares for me and he wants the best for me and he is all wise and he is all powerful and he is all loving and I want my life to respond in a way that would honor and glorify him and it's not as much about keeping a rule as it is about honoring the Savior in Allowing his spirit to obey him through the word. Somebody said it this way. If you're going to live in God's kingdom, you should live by God's constitution. This is more than just a history book. 
It should be the map to how your life is lived. The instruction manual for living. Do you understand that you have a good king? A good king who wants the best for you. A good king who is a lot smarter than you are and a lot smarter than I am. Who is all wise. Who sees the beginning from the end. And in moments he might lead you in a direction that makes no sense. And he might allow your path to go to a place that just seems ridiculous to you. But you've got to understand, your good king doesn't just see a part of the road. He doesn't just see the new feud next step. He sees the whole thing. And sometimes for your good and for your benefit and for his glory, he will lead you in a direction that seems a little painful. He'll allow you to go through seasons of distress because he knows in that moment it will prepare you for something further down the road that you would not have been able to get through outside of what he wanted to give you in that that moment. I'm here to say that this Bible here is not trying to make your life miserable. It's not trying to cramp your style. It is given to you by a loving king and a wise king and a powerful king who simply wants the best for your life. He wants what's good for you. And we're only going to be able to live in response as we truly reflect on how good he is. You say, why is this so important? Colossians chapter number 1 verse 18 says that in all things he might have the preeminence. I want to remind you today, and this is very important, that your king does not just want to be prominent in your life. He doesn't just want to be prominent in your family and prominent in your work and prominent in your relationships and prominent in your entertainment and prominent in how you respond to others and prominent in how you do what you do and how you spend your money. He has no interest as your king of being prominent. Your king wants to be preeminent because he understands he's wiser than you are and he's, he's more generous than you are and he, has, he knows the beginning and the end. He's more powerful than you are. He knows what is best and because he knows it's best for you when you allow him not just to have the prominence he knows it's best for you when he has the preeminence. When he has the right to veto and urge in directions and move in different directions. It's God and he's good. You see, when we're constantly recognizing that God is a good king, it causes us to respond to God's goodness with allegiance. We see that. Now, Romans chapter number 2, as we kind of come to our conclusion here. Romans 2 says this, Despise not the riches of his goodness. Don't do it. Yet this is exactly what the nation of Israel does here in verse number 19. You want to skip? We didn't read this earlier. But notice what it says. So Samuel stands up. God says, I want you to go and warn them. If they want their king, I let them have it. But at least tell them, warn them. Don't, they can't say, I didn't tell them. So in verse number, so for all these verses, Samuel's like trying to tell them, this is what your king's going to do. He's going to take your sons and he's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them men servants and lady servants. He's going to take your cattle and he's going to have taxes and he's going to do all these things that I wouldn't do to you. And then he comes to verse 19, nevertheless, okay, so for all these verses, Samuel's doing his best to warn them and saying, this is what you're really asking for. You want to be like every other nation? You want to, be, you want to live like everybody else? You, you want to live the same way? Okay, God, God's going to let you. 
And this is a wonderful thing about God, and I want you to get this. God gives each and every one of us free will. Can I say this? Your God isn't going to make you do something you don't want to do. And as a pastor and as a church, I want to just be transparent with you. My heart deep down is not to make you do something you don't want to do. I have no, I have no desire to try to control a congregation. And you say, well, maybe it's mind control. I, I, I wouldn't know how to do it if I could. God gives you something called free will. This church gives you free will. I'm going to do what God says to do. I'm going to preach this book, but I'm going to tell you at the end of the day, you have a free will. I'm not going to try to force you to do something that you're not going to do. Because that's the model that God gives us. God says to Samuel, hey, warn him. And that's what God says for me to do. I'll warn. I'll preach the Bible. I'll preach the scriptures. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to try to manipulate every person in the congregation to do something. Just because I think, well, the Bible says so. The end doesn't justify the means. Unless the Spirit of God does something in your heart, it doesn't matter what I try to do. And so I rest in that. It's not my job to change you. It's not my job to manipulate. It's not my job to get somebody to do what God wants. It's simply my job to listen to the Spirit of God and do what he often says, warn. Just tell him. And yet here's what happens to verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. That happens a lot in churches. The word of God gets preached, a word from the Lord comes, the Bible gets preached, and people refuse. And can I say, in some regards, I don't care. (laughs) You take this message, you take the messages from weeks before, and you go out and do whatever you want with it. In one regards, I could care less. I don't care what you do. Now understand the spirit in which I say this. You have a free will. I don't lose sleep at night when you don't obey some sermon. (laughs) Because in that regard, I don't care. (laughs) Here's Here's the arena in which I do care. Because you're my friends. And I love each and every one of you dearly. And you don't break God's laws. You don't. You break yourself against them. And in that regards, I care. Not because I want you to do something or not. I, you do what you want. God's given you a free will, and in this church, you have free will. We're not going to try to manipulate to do something, but I'm going to say this. As the word of God goes forth, you don't break God's laws. Nobody breaks God's laws. God's laws can't intrinsically be broken. You break yourself against them. You break yourself trying to do something different. You break yourself trying to go your own way. You break yourself rebelling against what God wants. And so my heart breaks for you. My heart weeps for you because you're not breaking a law of God. You're breaking yourself. You're breaking your relationship. You're breaking family. You're breaking future. And that's when my heart goes out. And so God says to Samuel, tell them they, they want to be like everybody else. And that's what a lot of people say. Pastor, what you're talking about, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be. We want to be just like all the other nations. We want to be just like the guys at work. 
I want to do, I want to be, I want, I want to have the values of people who, you know, I hang out with in my neighborhood. I want to have what they have, and I want to look like they look, and I want to live like they live, and I want to, we want to be like them. And you can be. But God has chosen you as believers. You are new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are not that anymore. You can try to live that way. You can try to do those things. But you're not going to break them. You'll break yourselves against them. And in that regards, as a prophet, I try to stand up week after week recognizing my own brokenness. And warning of the brokenness that lies ahead when we rebel against God's leading in us and through us. Can I say this? It's not going to work for the world. You say, I just want, I want the priorities that they have. And I want to have the things that they have. And I want to live the way they live. And I want to do what they do. Can I say this? It's not working for them. And it's not going to work for you either. God has something better for his children. God has something better for you. He has something better for me. He is a wise king. He is a good king. He is a powerful king. And he is a king that knows what is best for you. But notice what it says in verse 22. This is almost maybe one of the saddest verses in this passage. Read it for yourself. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken, Unto their voice. Do you get this? Here's what God says. Let them have their way. One of the saddest things in the Bible is where God allows you to have your way when your way goes against his way. And God says, let them have it. Can I say to you, God will let you have your way? He will. Because he's given you free will. Now, can I, let me just throw this out here because it's, there is still such something as sowing and reaping. Here's what happens a lot of times. God says, you want it, you can have it. You want your way, I have something different, but if you want it, you can have it. And then people say, good, <laughs> yeah, I'll take it rather than humbling themselves to a benevolent and loving and gracious heavenly father. And all of a sudden, the world, the flesh, and the devil begin to pummel their lives because you don't break God's law. You break yourself against them. That's the reality of the universe in which God instituted. And it's not because he doesn't love you. And it's not because he doesn't care for you. It's that he wants the best for you. And he will do anything in his power to bring you back into a relationship with him. A relationship that's life-giving. A relationship where you can experience his love, his goodness, and his greatness. And he'll do what it takes to encourage and lovingly draw you back. But then Christians will come along and they'll say, well, God, I just don't understand why God's allowing this and why God's allowing that. And not all the time, but sometimes it is not God. He warned you. He said, let my spirit live through you. Surrender to my plan. I want what's best for you. I want what's good for you. I can see where this path leads and I want to give you a good thing. Please, when you rebel against God, you're rebelling against your own best benefits. You, when you rebel against God, you rebel against your self-interest. 
You rebel against what's best for you. You rebel against what's good for you. You rebel against what's healthy for you. You rebel against what God has ultimate best is for your life. You're not rebelling against God because God is kind and God is loving and God is good. You're not rebelling against just this man in the sky. You're rebelling against yourself. You're rebelling against your best interest. You're rebelling against what God has for your best future. And so God lovingly says, warn them. They can't say they didn't, weren't told to surrender to his spirit and allow Christ to live through their lives. And yet the Lord said, Samuel, hearken to their voice. Give them what they want. And I find that this is often what God does. He gives you what you want. Only to find that what you thought you wanted did not give you what you thought it would give you. Yes, it brings some momentary freedom. There's a euphoria that goes along with, yeah, I got, I got my own thing going on now. And it gives you momentary sense of my, I can do my thing. But can I say this? God's good to his servants. He's very good to his servants. He blesses. He promises too and he follows through. Not because, we're, not because you're better than somebody else, just because he says, hey, I want to do good in you and I want to do good through you. And when you surrender to his leading, when you surrender to his spirit, his spirit is going to take you to a place that honors him and that is good for you. It's healthy. And on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and those days where we fail, his mercy is upon us. His grace can raise us back up so we can continue to walk in that newness of life. His mercy is great. His grace is wonderful. And he's waiting. Those of you who know me, you know in my humanity, I can sometimes get very easily distracted. Something I deal with and I live with. I remember on one occasion I was on the kitchen and I was doing some work. I was preparing for some stuff and I was working along and, and I kind of heard something kind of out of my peripheral vision. This is horrible and I hate to admit it, but it's the reality, so I'll share it with you. I heard something, and just, I, but it just wasn't connecting consciously with me. So I just kept working. Finally, like five minutes after that had happened, I kind of came to, kind of zoned out of what I was working on. I, I came to. My daughter Ashlyn is just sitting there looking at me. Kind of caught me by surprise. I said, hey, sweetie, what, what's going on? She said, well, I was trying to get your attention. But I couldn't, so I just thought I'd wait. And there she was, just waiting. And the reality is this, I'm an imperfect father with humanity, and I sin. But I'm so thankful that I have a heavenly father who is absolutely perfect, who just waits. And every once in a while, he'll try to get your attention. Sometimes he'll use circumstances, and other times he'll use preaching. Sometimes he'll use a spouse or a godly friend. He'll use his word just in your daily time. He'll do his best to get his attention. But here's what's wonderful, he's patient. And he'll wait. And eventually, his spirit might lead you to come to. And you'll hear your heavenly father saying, I'm waiting. 
I'm here. He's trying to get your attention. You see, you have a heavenly father. You have a king who desperately desires a relationship with you. A relationship that's life-giving. A relationship that is truly satisfying. I'm going to say this. Most of us will look to a thousand things smaller than Jesus to provide satisfaction that only Jesus can give and a relationship with him can give. And maybe you're 30 or you're 40 or 50 and you chase whatever it is that you're being led to believe will give you satisfaction. I'm going to tell you, all you'll do is give yourself a momentary buzz to kind of make it through the next day or to the next weekend so you can just kind of... I'm telling you what, Jesus offers something better. He offers something deeper. He offers something richer. And until you've truly experienced it, you can't even truly understand it. A peace, a contentment, a satisfaction. And he'll wait because he loves you. He'll even let you go your own way for a while because he loves you. He's not trying to control your life or make your life miserable. He gave you free will. We've had it since the garden. And so you serve a heavenly father that's not trying to control you. You go to a church that's not trying to manipulate you, just trying to warn and say, hey, so what the Word of God has to say. What, how will you lead? Even when we find ourselves distracted, God still desperately wants to be with you. Even when you run from God, He still loves you. He's pursuing you with all of His heart. He is chasing you until you finally give in to prioritizing a deeper relationship with Him. At some point, we've got to get to a place where we say, the King of all, the King of the universe and the God of the heavens is worth my time. He's that good. He's worth reprioritizing my life around. He's worth changing my values around because He's good and He's great and He is God. And God says, until then, I'll keep chasing. And until then, I'll keep pursuing. And until then, I'll keep being patient because I love you. Here's the big idea. Sermon in one statement, and we'll wrap it up. God earns the trust of those who spend time with him. You'll learn to trust God as you spend time with Him. I know. It's okay. I know there's people in here who don't trust Him. And we're all at different stages of His trust. And I want to say, that's okay. It's okay. There are some people in here who, other than what they say with their lips, authentically don't trust God because there's no, there's no fruit of it. And that's okay. God loves you anyways. He's merciful upon you anyways. He cares for you anyways. But He, ha- he also has something better. God earns the trust. You say, how, how, how do I get to the place where I really trust Him fully? He earns the trust of those who spend the time with Him. As you spend time with Him, as you get to know Him, the reason we don't obey God is because we don't trust Him. And the reason we don't trust God is because we do not know Him. And the reason we do not know Him is because we don't prioritize sufficient time with Him. So here's my question. We're done. What lesser important things tend to keep you from regularly spending time with God? What lesser important things edge God out? It's amazing. And, and I'm, not trying to, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get, you know, into everybody's business. But it's amazing how a season like this we can have time for World Cup and no time for his word. And I'm not saying that to judge and I'm not saying that to put a guilt trip on anybody. That's not my heart at all. My heart is just to say that reveals something about your heart. That's it. 
It just says he's not as important as maybe you're saying he is with your lips. And that's okay because we're all broken. And we all need his mercy. But let that reveal something. Let it reveal something about your values. Let it reveal something about your priorities. When it's sports gets more time than Jesus. And hobbies get more time than prayer. You say you're just trying to guilt trip. I really am not trying to guilt trip you into praying. Because I realize that will do any good. But what I'm trying to say is let those things reveal something about where your heart's at. And then come to God who loves you and who cares about you and confess. Just say, God, this is where I'm at and I just need your work of grace to do something in my life and in my heart if, you're, if I'm going to get to where I can truly experience that blessing and that relationship the way you desire to experience it. And when those prioritized things get out of whack in my life, I don't feel all guilty and shamed. I just, I let it remind me. Something's up with my heart. Something's, something's not on all cylinders. And let those things show you that God desires something more with you. Can I ask you, are you willing to sacrifice whatever that lesser thing is for your relationship with God? God's not going to ask you to sacrifice things that he put into your life. He's not going to ask you to sacrifice your marriage or your children. He gave you those things as gifts from him. You're not going to have to sacrifice your career if that's a career God that legitimately came from heaven. But he might ask you to sacrifice some lesser things. A minute ago, all of us sang this song, I Surrender All. We sang it. And I, I fear that there's a lot of lying that happens during song services in churches across America. We lie. And we don't mean to, we're not being, but we sing something with our lips that our hearts do not mean. I would hope that God would allow us to, to see him stay on the throne room of our lives. You see, God put himself as king over the nation of Israel. He had a big plan, he had a big purpose, he was unfolding the redemptive story. And he wanted to maintain that place of authority. But they said, we want to be like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. We want to act like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. We want to experience what everybody else experiences. And God says, but you're not everybody else. I've got something better for you. You say, what needs to be done? What are we going to surrender? What are we willing to sacrifice to prioritize our daily relationship with our Heavenly Father? To focus on Him to spend time with him and to truly glorify him through our lives? That's the question. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father.